Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their money belts. They were to put on sandals, but not to wear two coats. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that area. Any place that will not receive you or listen to you as you leave there, shake off the dust that is under your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They also drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the word of the Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the head of the church and sends out workers into this world to gather in his flock. One of the things that our our homiletics professors, that is, preaching professors at the seminary, uh, caution us against doing too often is using big technical words in sermons. I said it, it, it tends to confuse people, and if you use too many, it can even cause them to fall asleep. Well, at the risk of confusing you or putting you to sleep, I'm going to go out on a limb and use a big technical term. The term is hermeneutics. It's a, a fancy term, technical term, for the practice of interpreting Scripture. So you, you open your Bible, and the first thing you ask is, what does this say? The hermeneutics is that next step. What does this mean? Hermeneutics uh, is a, a multi-layered type of thing. Uh, when, especially when you're looking at the original languages, uh, you start with individual letters, uh, individual words, individual sentences, chapters, entire books, and then, and then eventually the entire Bible. There's another aspect of hermeneutics that is very important, too, and it is this, trying, this idea of trying to understand who the author is writing to and the purpose for which he is writing. So who is Mark writing to here? Uh, that's an interp- important interpretive question. Now, if I haven't put you to sleep yet... You might wonder, where am I going with this? Well, I'm pretty sure most of you have probably heard a sermon preached on these verses. And I can almost guarantee that you were told that you are like the apostles. That you have been called and commissioned by Christ to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. I've heard heard many sermons preached on texts like this that, that speak that very same thing, that you are supposed to put yourselves in the shoes of the apostles and, and, and you are now sent out into the world as God's missionaries. Now think about that for a second. Would Mark need to write these words to the apostles? Why would he need to write these words to the apostles? They were there. They heard what Jesus said. They went out and did the work. In fact, Mark received most of, we believe, received most of his information directly from Peter. The apostles didn't need to hear this. It was those lay people, those Christians who would later on read these words. They were the ones that needed to hear this. In other words, 
Mark is writing here, and he's not commissioning, he's not recruiting individual lay Christians into the ministry, telling you that you are each a missionary. Instead, he is helping us to better understand the nature and the character of the public ministry, both what, what he expects of pastors and what he expects in return of the members of the church. In the verse before our text, uh, we read last week that Jesus was, after he had been uh, shunned, you know, uh, rejected by the people of his hometown in Nazareth, he went around to different villages preaching and teaching the gospel. That wasn't enough for him, though. He wanted to multiply how many people, how many ears would be able to hear the gospel, and so he gathered the twelve to him, and he began to send them out two by two so that even more people could, could hear the saving message of the gospel. And Mark summarizes their message with just one word, the word repent. Now, repent can be used in two different ways in Scripture. There's a narrow sense and there's a broader sense. The narrow sense is simply to repent of your sins, to confess your sins. But when it's found all by itself like this, we should understand repent in a wide sense, meaning not only to turn away from something, but also to turn to something. So the apostles went out preaching repentance. Turn away from your sin, yes. Turn away from your own effort, your own works, your own wisdom, your own righteousness, and turn to what? To Jesus' sinlessness. To Jesus' wisdom. To Jesus' effort. To to Jesus' righteousness which can save you. And so I think the whole theme here in this section is how desperately Jesus wants that message to get out. That, that people would be led to turn away from sin, the, the road that leads to hell, and be turned to the road to heaven. Be turned to Jesus, who is the doorway to heaven. I think that's the, the overarching theme of what Jesus is doing here. Now, you don't get that, really, if you understand this text, if you interpret this text as putting yourselves into the shoes of the apostles, if you, if you read yourself into these words, it doesn't make much sense, does it? I mean, if you, if you are the apostles, then what are the apostles supposed to do? If you are, are the called and commissioned missionaries in the church today, what are pastors supposed to do? Doesn't it change the function of the ministry totally if you understand that this is referring to every individual Christian being sent out into the world? I, I, I suppose if you, if you understood it that way, then the role of a pastor is not to administer the means of grace, but rather to be a coach, uh, a motivator, a recruiter, right? That, that their call is to recruit individuals that can go out and proclaim the gospel themselves, that they are, are primarily to motivate. Now, another hermeneutical interpretive principle is that we should compare Scripture to Scripture. So what is it that Jesus actually sent his apostles to do and later his pastors? Well, well think about John 21. All right, That's where uh, the Lord is calling Peter back to repentance. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says that three times. What did, what did Jesus then command Peter to do? Did he say, uh, go out and I want you to recruit an army of sheep that can do the work for me. You know, organize them into brigades so that my work can be done, that the church can grow. 
I'm pretty sure Jesus said, feed my sheep. Think of Luke 24 before Jesus ascended into heaven. Did Jesus command his disciples to go out into all the world and organize uh, outreach seminars and write books based on how every individual Christian can do evangelism and the silver bullet of, of getting that person you're sitting next to on the airplane to listen to the gospel and believe? Pretty sure Jesus said repentance and the forgiveness of sins is going to be preached to all the world. Or the Great Commission. Did did Jesus tell his disciples to go out and and organize the sheep and motivate the sheep and, and give the sheep guidance on how to witness in their own lives? I'm pretty sure Jesus commanded his apostles, his disciples, to go into all the world and gather disciples baptizing and teaching them everything he had commanded them. You see, I know it's popular today, and it has been for a few decades now, to say every Christian should be a missionary. And that is certainly true. There there are places in Scripture that teach that about our individual personal responsibility to witness to Christ in our private lives. But that's not what Mark is talking about here. Mark is not talking about personal, private evangelism. He's talking about the public ministry. And he's helping you, who are the readers of Mark, to understand what the the public ministry is all about. It kind of puts the rest of the text in a little different light when you understand it that way, right? Uh, Mark goes on to say, uh, Jesus told them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their money belts. They were to put on sandals, but not to wear two coats. So how do you understand that if it's talking about this is the call that the pastors have received to you? Well, they are not to have to work for their own uh, living. They're not supposed to get a second job so that they can support themselves and their families. That's, that's your ministry. That's That's your job. That's how you, where God has put you in the kingdom of God. That's how you assist in the gospel ministry. And and it's not only here. It's much more expressly put in the book of Galatians. Paul says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with his teacher. Now, I'm not saying these things for personal selfish reasons. I'm not just bringing it up because I'm looking for a pay raise or something like that. I'm saying these things, first of all, because they're right here in the text, so I have to say them. Uh, But also, because I know there are so many Christians in so many churches, and I've even felt this way when when I was sitting in churches, and I was told, you know, you you really better be like Peter and James and John. You You better get out there. Go to the corners of the world and proclaim the gospel. And you would leave feeling so guilty. There's so many Christians who, who hang their heads in guilt because they hear that and they think, I can't, I can't do that. I, I've got marriage. I've got a family. I've got a full-time job. I can't dedicate my entire life to, to witnessing the gospel. And they're made to feel so guilty. They, they think, I can't, I can't preach like Peter and Paul. I can't do those things. I'm not eloquent. I'm, I'm shy. I'm reserved. So it's to comfort you that I'm telling you these things, that in, in this section where the public ministry is being outlined for the first time by Jesus, he's telling you your role is, 
is a support role for the pastor. And you are doing a very good job of that. I am not asking for anything more. You are doing an excellent job. But you can be content. You can be at peace that supporting your pastor, not, not just with money, but with, with your prayers, with your encouragements, with, with your skills, with your time, by being in worship and Bible class, those are ways that God has called you to support the gospel ministry. And you're doing that. So be content with that. Don't, don't feel guilty course there's the other side of this coin as well jesus says if people don't listen to the men that i have sent out to proclaim the gospel then then they're going to stand as a witness a testimony against them and i think for myself and for most of the pastors i know if they had any complaint at all it it wouldn't be that that their congregations aren't supplying them with enough materially or physically. It would be what Jesus said here. You're not listening to me. Now, stick with me here. I'm not going to be too mean. If you walk out those doors with a guilty conscience, still thinking that you stand condemned or could stand condemned before God, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me when I repeat the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3.21 where he says, your baptism is a guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may not feel like your conscience is clear, but God knows it is, and your baptism is a guarantee of that. If you walk out those doors still weighed down with sin or maybe thinking, I am so addicted to this sin, or I am so stuck in a rut of sin, I can never get out. You're not listening to me. You're not listening to the words of absolution where God Himself sends your sin as far away from you as the East is from the West. If you leave here and think, God is some distant being that couldn't possibly care about me. Maybe He cares about the big important people in the world, but He couldn't care about little old me. You're not listening to the words of institution in which Jesus Himself, the God of the universe, comes right here and to you personally and individually and gives you His body and blood. Jesus couldn't care more about you personally and individually. Listen. Listen to that good news. That comforting, peace-giving news. In fact, Jesus cares so much that He leaves a testimony uh, with you. He says here, Any place that will not receive you or listen to you as you leave there, shake off the dust that is under your feet as a testimony against them. In a way, Jesus is following the science before following the science became a thing. right? Uh, you know, CSI, the TV show. Uh, and other forensic experts know, and so we know, that, that the, the tiny, tiniest little bit of forensic evidence, a, a single hair, a fiber, a partial fingerprint, can, can be used in a court of law to prove that someone was in a certain place at a certain time. And, and Jesus is using dust in the same way. He's saying here, if, if someone rejects you, he's telling his apostles, if, if someone rejects you and won't listen to your message, shake the dust off your feet, that's going to be then used as evidence on Judgment Day that says, my messengers came to you and you wanted nothing to do with their message. Now, I've been to several of your homes, and you don't really live on a dusty, dirt street. So what's the dust that there is today that that would testify, witness, be used in God's courtroom on Judgment Day against people who refuse to listen 
to Jesus' gospel messengers? Well, I would say one very obvious one, if you're thinking of our neighbors here in McFarland, is our 10,000 square foot building where the word of God is preached and taught every single week. I'd say the the sermons that are preached, the Bible classes that are taught, the, the sacraments that are administered will be called forth by God on Judgment Day saying to them, I put my church, I put my messenger right in your backyard, but you thought that golfing or fishing or camping or walking your dog were more important than hearing the life-giving message of the gospel. And it will be called as a testimony, as a witness against them. You can't, they won't be able to say, I never had a chance to hear the gospel. Who is this Jesus guy? No one ever told me about him. And God will say, there was a big church right in your backyard, but you had no interest in it. Maybe one of the reasons for that, that that more people aren't interested in in hearing the gospel is because they don't fully understand the incredible authority that Jesus has given to his called workers, to his pastors. Jesus says he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, I I know what you're thinking. You've never seen an exorcism here. Uh, And I'm here to tell you you have. You have seen an exorcism. Um, demons, you know, we usually think of demon possession in the sense of physical possession. Well, even in the Bible times, that was incredibly rare. It's very rare today, too. Demons, demon possession isn't just something that you, that you see in the movies where someone is acting like a total psychopath or they're babbling in languages they've never learned or, or they have superhuman strength and can't be tied down by four strong men. Demonic activity manifests itself in very, what we would consider, common ways, even in our lives. In ways like like guilt, like shame, like anxiety, like fear, like lust, like addiction, like covetousness. Things that, that you and I struggle with on a daily basis. Those are the torments of the devil and his demons. And so you come here to be exercised of those demons. The first and clearest way is when you were baptized. Baptism is the real exorcism that takes place in the church. It, I like to think of it this way. Baptism is, is when God sends a special forces mission covertly into this world to, to snatch up one of Satan's slaves and, and f- bring them into the freedom of the kingdom of God. When you're baptized, you're clothed with Christ, Paul says. And and as we, we see from the, the rest of the Gospels, wherever Christ is, there the demons can't be, right? The demons often, when Jesus walks up, they'll say, get away from us! We don't want anything to do with you! Well, that's how the demons feel about you when you remember your baptism, that you've been baptized into God's family. You are clothed with Christ, and where Christ is, demons can't be. The, the other more general way is just wherever the Gospel is proclaimed. That, that is a form of exorcism, that demons are forced to run away. Think about what the gospel message means to a demon when they hear it. Um, I guess I'll use this one. I might get myself into trouble. But, but an analogy would be like um, when you tell some Democrats, some, not all of them, but some of them, um, abortion is not, or abortion is murder. Or on the other hand, when you tell some Republicans, not, not all of them, that, 
you don't have any inherent right to own a gun. And, and what do they do? They, you know, kind of like a little kid, plug your ears and run away. I don't want to hear that. Don't, don't tell me those things. That's what the gospel is for demons. They don't want to hear it. Because what does the gospel say to demons? The Lord has kept his promise he made to Adam and Eve in the beginning that his son would come and crush the head of your master. The gospel means that Jesus has succeeded in doing his work and in the mission he came for, which is destroying the works of the devil. The gospel means to a demon that your power has been broken. You can no longer control my people. And all you have to look forward to is an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell forever. Can you blame the demons for running away from a message like that? Come here. When you're afflicted by whatever demons, however they manifest themselves in your life, Jesus has given His called workers the authority to dispel them, to cast them out through the means of grace. There's one more thing Jesus gave His disciples, His apostles' authority to do. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. You probably never thought you'd hear that in a Lutheran church, that that God's workers, God's called workers, are authorized to perform miracles of healing. Well, let's not take it too far. Yes, at times the prophets and the apostles were authorized, were empowered by Jesus to do miracles of healing. But they're incredibly rare, even in Scripture. There there are not a lot of of healings in Scripture. And so when when Mark describes them as, as taking oil with them, and anointing people with oil, they were really just using the only medicine they had available at the time, which was olive oil. Uh, they were doing what we do today. When you go to a doctor when you're sick, you don't come to me to, to uh, heal your pneumonia. You go to a doctor. And, and that's very similar to what they were doing. They were just applying the medicine of the time. And they were also healing them. That was miraculous healing. But we have no promise in the Bible that... that the church will always have the gift of miraculous healing. So we shouldn't expect that. Don't, don't come to me with your paralysis or your blindness or your ingrown toenail and, and ask me to heal it. That's, that's not my work. That's not what uh, the Lord has called me to do. But there, is, there, there are two very clear aspects, ways in which God's called workers do provide physical healing. The first is the Lord's Supper. You may or may not know that the church fathers called the Lord's Supper the medicine of immortality. This is the only medicine that that really matters after you die. Because you realize that that every doctor and every prescription, every drug has a, in the end, a 100% failure rate. Everyone, in the end, will die. This is the only medicine that will matter at that point. This is the medicine that guarantees that when Jesus returns, you will be bodily raised. You will be fully healed. That is real healing. Eternal healing. There's another another way in which God authorizes pastors to provide physical healing. And it has to do with guilt. As anyone who has wrestled with, with guilt, with a guilty conscience knows, it can take a physical toll on you. You can't sleep. You can't eat. All those, those aches and pains seem so much worse when your conscience is racking you, accusing you. And how do you get rid of that? 
David described it in, in Psalm 32 after he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. He said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He knew the, the physical pain that guilt works on a person. And so you come here for healing. You come here to hear the absolution which, which cures guilt. Or you come to me privately where, where I will announce the absolution to you personally and privately to be cured of those physical maladies that come along with guilt because guilt can only be removed by the gospel, by the words of absolution. That's what Jesus wants you to hear in these words today. How he so desperately wanted you to, to hear the good news and to be saved. That, that he took pains to send men to preach the gospel to you. I know you probably have never heard this text preached this way before, and I think I know why. I think it's because we like to read the Bible as if it were about us. Well, my name's not in there, and neither is yours. The Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus and the amazing lengths he has gone to draw us to himself and to bring us into the kingdom of God. Please do not leave here guilty that you can't preach like Peter or Paul. That is not your call. This text is not about you. This is about what Jesus has done in commissioning those apostles and what he continues to do in still sending men to proclaim the gospel and administer the sacraments today. This text is about the public ministry. So today, give thanks to God for that public ministry. Amen.